The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome, welcome. Nice to see you all. How is the volume? It feels a tiny bit loud for me. Does it seem loud to you guys? Um, is this okay? I have to talk nonstop for, in order for this to... Can I get a thumbs up? Yes? Okay, <laughs> thanks. So sometimes it's helpful to think about or reflect on what is our heart's deepest longing Recognizing, right, that we have limited time on to be alive and limited resources and limited energy. Is it, are we spending it in a way that's meaningful for us? That's going to help to go in the direction that we would like? What are our deepest aspirations? Maybe we'll just take a moment just to think about them. It's useful to reflect on this, taking some time, and what are you most inspired by? What makes your heart sing when you think about it or... Maybe it isn't clear right now, that's perfectly fine. But when we kind of like align with an aspiration or we remind ourselves or touch into what's really important for us, there can be a a feeling of uh, lightness or some ease or maybe some openness or relief. In contrast to this feeling like, oh, I should do this. (laughs) That's kind of like the opposite of this openness. The sense of should kind of has this sense of contraction or restriction or limitation or something like this. But this kind of reflection, it's good to do regularly. Otherwise, right, our life just passes us by while we're taking care of all the things that need taken care of. Sometimes it's easy to get disconnected from what's most important. And maybe to feel motivated, like how can we, even if our so much of our time and energy has to go in one particular direction, maybe there's a way we can weave into our life something that supports our aspirations. With regard to our spiritual life, we might think like aspiration, mm, that sounds too much like goal. And I don't think I want to have any goals with my spiritual life. I just want to just have a spiritual life. I don't want to have any goals. There might be some people who have that idea, but then we, we might be able to say, well, maybe you have a goal to be mindful, practice mindfulness regularly, or have a meditation practice regularly, or maybe you have a goal to listen to Dharma talks, or 
read Dharma books or something like this or to practice with the Eightfold Path or with the precepts. or So we might consider those kind of goals and then we might ask, well, are there some goals that are okay to have but not other goals? Or do we dare to aspire for more and more freedom? Do we dare to aspire for more and more peace and ease? Or do we somehow feel like that's not available for us? Maybe you have this wish in your heart for some happiness. Maybe you have a wish for happiness not only for yourself but for others. Maybe you have an aspiration of service, supporting others in whatever way makes sense for you and in whatever way your life uh, supports that. There's no right answer, of course not. It doesn't have to be one particular way and all of us, I'm sure, have our own versions of this or maybe own flavors of it. So it's this And even if we have a similar aspiration, the way it gets expressed will be different with everybody. I mean, to say something like service is such a big general word, but that will be different for everybody. Or greater freedom, you know, maybe that looks different for everybody. So the Buddha recognized that uh, there's aspirations. Of course, He's promoting the aspiration to Nibbana. He's teaching suffering and the end of suffering, so he's highlighting the ending of suffering. But he give, gave some uh, talks on what, how to support our aspirations that include something in the list, right? Are you surprised? <laughs> it's a list. But uh, that are maybe not the usual list of things that we hear. Some of them are the same, but there are some things that are a little bit different. And I appreciate uh, in the sutta, the uh, Buddha starts by saying that just in the same way that a child of a monarch has this aspiration to be the monarch, in the same way a practitioner has the aspiration to find freedom. I kind of like this because when we think of the children of monarchs, everybody's just assuming that they're going to next going to take the throne. Everybody's just kind of think, assuming, well, that's of course what's going to happen, and this is the direction their life is going to go, and maybe their whole life has been around preparing for that to take the throne, wear the crown, whatever it might be. So I kind of like that idea as a, as a simile that just in the same way practitioners will find freedom. Like maybe their whole life is going this direction or getting prepared for that or there's this way we can just assume, yeah, that's the direction we're going. In the same way that the children of the monarchs assume that they're going to take the monarchy at some time. So what are these qualities that the Buddha lists? The one is confidence. Confidence that the aspiration is even possible. 
I'm a little bit inspired by the Buddha's story of his story of um, becoming awakened. Some of you may know this story, and part of it is that he had some meditation teachers, and with those teachers he had some significant meditative attainments that today we would kind of call these meditative attainments, and he became just as adept as his teachers. And his teachers were you know, the most senior in their tradition, or, you know, they were their own tradition. They were like the equivalent of the Buddha, but, uh, um, you know, they were the leaders of an, their own religious tradition, let me say that. And the Buddha, he had the same proficiency that they did, and yet he felt like, oh, there's something more. Even though there wasn't anybody else who was saying there was something more, he had this sense, he had this confidence that, oh, yeah, there's something more. There's more freedom available. So after the first teacher, he went to a second teacher, had even higher meditative attainments, and yet he still had this idea, yeah, there's still freedom available. There's a little bit of suffering here. I can feel it. I I believe there's an ending of suffering. So maybe we don't have that same kind of confidence that the Buddha did, but just pointing to tuning into or becoming aligned with this sense that we feel like, oh yeah, there's... There can be more freedom, can be more happiness, more peace, more ease. Whatever word you want to use, whatever inspires you, whatever your aspiration is. So, in the classic teachings, they will say, kind of like confidence in the awakening of the Buddha, or confidence that the Buddha is awakened, you know, that this is possible, that people do get enlightened. But it's not only confidence that enlightenment exists or whatever your aspiration might be. It's also so important that we have confidence that we can do it, right? Otherwise, that's just seem, we'll be dismissive and not really apply ourselves. If we have this idea, yeah, that'd be nice, but that's for other people. It's not for me. Yeah, that'd be great, but I can't do it. That's a different uh, feeling, right? So, this confidence that the Buddha had. And so I'm just going to say a few words here about this inner critic. I kind of, I bring this up often just with, uh, and practice discussions with people. I, I know it comes up and it certainly has come up a lot for me in my life. This idea, this maybe this constellation of emotions or thoughts inside of us that it's kind of like belittling us or making us think that uh, we're inadequate in some way or making us feel like we just aren't capable or a way that it's blaming ourselves for everything or maybe just this voice of negativity or often it has this quality of harshness or maybe it's just a quiet, soft You'll never make it. (laughs) That kind of feeling, right? So when this is kind of this constellation of thoughts and emotions and when it's up and running, there's this feeling that of this kind of should, like I should do this, I should have done that, I should stop doing this, you know, this bunch of this the should. So when there's a sense of should, there's kind of, this also is like really heavy and maybe can have this oppressive feeling. 
which is the opposite of aligning with our aspirations, which has this this uh, brightness and openness and ease. So there's this way in which having this said of should is maybe this oppression, or maybe I could use the word pressure, that that has this lot of effects on us. But one of is one of it is that it. It's not only does it squeeze the joy or happiness or ease out of practice, but it also blocks our capacity to ask deep questions. When we have this inner critic that's really loud and authoritative, then there's a way in which we don't even dare to ask what our higher aspirations are. Maybe for fear that we won't get a, achieve it or... Maybe for this feeling like, well, who am I to even aspire for something beautiful for my life? Who am I to even think that I can do that? So this this ability to ask these questions, in some ways we might even say kind of get strangled <laughs> with the pressure of this inner critic. This inner critic isn't true, but we believe it's true. It's very persuasive, very like authoritative. But what are some ways that we might work with this? Maybe I'll say that um, for quite some time I taught about the inner critic in the context of what uh, happy hour was, which I did for a number of years on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So in the, uh, rather than giving a whole talk on this, on the inner critic, I'll point to just a few things, but there is a playlist on Audio Dharma about working with this. So, what's the one thing we can do with this inner critic? Practice with kindness. Kindness wherever it's easiest. Because sometimes when the inner critic is up and running, it's like, that's a really tall order to say, oh, I'm going to have, you know, love myself or, you know, something like that. That's, you know, doesn't really work so well. But instead to do some loving kindness practice wherever it's easiest, wherever it's easiest. Puppies, kittens, babies, somebody that's in your life that's just really uh, your heart melts or when you think about them or maybe somebody who was in your life a coach or a mentor somebody a teacher who really helped you and supported you in your life maybe they're still in your life and to bring them to mind and allow that to soften your heart and maybe do some regular loving kindness practice and there's just this softening of the heart that kind of like uh, removes some of the harshness of this inner critic and kind of like shift the mood of our heart, I'll say, maybe is one one way to work with it. Another way is allowing it to be there, but maybe not buying into it. So giving it some space, like, oh yeah, there you are, I recognize you. Okay, come along. I'm not going to listen to you, but you might as well come along. You can you know, just keep on talking, but while you're talking, I'm going to go do this. You know, so we're honoring and respecting that part of our experience, 
but we're taking away its authority, taking away its uh, ability to boss us around. Or maybe we can start to learn how to question this inner critic. Like uh, maybe do some dialogue with it. Something like, really, is that so that I'll never do it? Well, there was that time that I thought I couldn't do X, but I actually did it. Doesn't mean that we haven't had failures, but also our whole life has not been one constant failure. There are some things that we have done. We've gone to school. We've uh, got dressed in the morning. (laughs) Some mornings we don't get dressed. That's okay. But we don't want to set a really high bar. Just notice that uh, we're not complete failures, right? So this is the first thing, is to have confidence in this help for aspirations. And I wanted to address a little bit about that, about the inner critic, because sometimes we don't even dare to have dreams. We don't even dare to aspire. They're kind of getting undermined by this inner critic. But the, a second quality, I changed the order of these. You know, in the Buddhism, there's all these lists, and they're usually in a particular order. I changed the order of these. But So what I'm calling the second isn't the second in the order. It doesn't really matter so much. Being honest and open. Being, that word sometimes gets translated as sincere. So this is not the usual that don't tell a lie, but instead it's to be open with others and yourself. And in particular, it talks about with wise friends that you have. So to have, you know, somebody or some, yeah, maybe somebody or some group in which you can share a little bit about your, what's happening with you, or maybe even some uh, about your practice. For those of you who have participated in Gil's or mine uh, year-long courses, Gil's just finished up Deepening Meditation Program, I'm just finishing up... uh, seven factors, seven shining jewels. We um, have people in breakout groups and we have them talk. And part of it is just that, to kind of the opportunity to share. You don't have to tell your deepest, darkest secrets. But there's something about sharing a little bit about how practices with others that kind of like normalizes what's happening. And there's wisdom in other people. You might learn like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Or, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to try that. So there's a way we can borrow the wisdom from other people and not feel so isolated. Sometimes having a meditation practice is not the usual things that people do. And it can be really great to connect with other people. So to have this openness with others. And in the, in the classic teachings, it talks about with the teacher and other spiritual companions. Especially in these days when we have social media and there's a lot of, you know, we have curated, uh, I don't know, like existences online. I don't know if everybody does this, but right, you know, what gets posted on social media is like the best version so often. So there's this kind of pressure, even if there weren't social media, but to only share what's the absolute picture perfect. But what's being pointed to here is to step away from that. 
I'm like, here's what actually happens in my practice. And to recognize that all of us have the hindrances, nobody is exempt from that. All of us have struggles. All of us have difficulties in, with getting to the cushion or whatever it might be. And it can be really great to be able to connect. So whether you have good spiritual friends or you come here on some Sundays, there's um, discussions after on Sundays. On Wednesdays on here, there's informal lunch people can talk. And then these courses that get taught, these year-long courses, always have every meeting an aspect of just people getting together. On Thursday nights, uh, Tanya Weiser, her teachings also have people get together, talk to each other. So just this recognition that it's uh, really nice to have somebody to talk with. Being honest and open. But there's another element to this idea of being honest and open. We have to be honest with ourselves. And we might even say that this, what this, that is what this practice is all about, is really just seeing what's really happening with ourselves. And sometimes we don't know. We're disconnected from ourselves. We're busy. We have lots of things to do or we're distracted or maybe it's painful and we're trying not to be with our experience. I am not saying jump into the most painful experience, by no means am I saying that. But this practice so much is about the truth of what's really happening with us. And we might even say that without a commitment to truth, there isn't really a path of practice. Because this practice is so much about just being with what's actually happening not our ideas, or not what we wish were happening, or what did happen, but to actually see the truth of the moment, the reality of the moment. And you might even go as so far as to say that the Dharma is all about truth. And so this being honest and open is one way to have this way in which we can express the Dharma and practice with the Dharma. And so it's not only that, it's just enormously helpful to learn what are our patterns, what are our habits, what are our sensitive points where we get triggered or derailed or get confused or where we shut down, just to learn that about ourselves so that we can work with it skillfully. Instead, we just end up spending our lives trying to avoid those areas, and then our life gets smaller and smaller. We want our lives to be big and rich and full of whatever we want it to be full of. So, with also with this getting to know ourselves and our habits and patterns, then maybe we can have a sense of how to move towards our aspiration. Maybe we're the type of person who just wants to feel into where is there more spaciousness and ease and I'm going to follow that. Or maybe there's a person you feel like, you know what, I like to follow rules and... I'm going to learn, like, what are the Buddhist teachings? And I'm really going to stick to that and use that to inspire me. 
Or maybe you're somebody who's like, well, you know what, I'm going to sketch a plan. Whatever it might be, just learning what motivates us and what derails us is enormously helpful. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But I, I like to think that the Buddha recognized that, that each of us need to learn for ourselves how we can apply these teachings to, so that we can reach our aspirations, so that our life can unfold in the way that we want it to unfold. So a third item on this list is having, like applying energy, applying effort. Makes sense. It's one thing to think and dream. It's one thing to get to know oneself. And certainly that is part of the path of practice. But this recognition that effort will be required for these aspirations. And so we might say something like um, perseverance or forbearance or steadfastness. I don't know, when I hear those words, I feel like, oh, ugh. <laughs> you know, it just feels like, you know, so much hard work. But it, I mean, it is effort, right? The Buddha wasn't able to just go, Shazam, everybody's awake, right? He was pointed the way, but he couldn't like help everybody to become awakened. Not to deny that apparently there were some people that heard the Buddha's teachings and became awakened. The rest of us, we have to apply some energy and some effort. And part of the practice is to learn, well, where should I apply my energy? And not only that, how much energy should I apply? And I like this uh, simile of a goldsmith. I've said this a number of times, but um, I'll just, I'd like to uh, share it here. Because sometimes when we hear this, like we have to apply energy, it feels like it has to be full on effort, pressure all the time. But this simile of the goldsmith points out that's actually not the case. It goes like this. Suppose a goldsmith would prepare a hot furnace, heat up a receptacle, take some gold, and using tongs, put it into the receptacle. And then the receptacle would go into the furnace. And then from time to time, the goldsmith would blow on the gold, get it hotter. From time to time, the goldsmith would sprinkle water on it, cool it down. And from time to time, the goldsmith would just look on as the gold was heating. If the goldsmith were to only blow on it, the gold would just burn up. If we just only sprinkle water on it, and it would just get cooler and not be malleable. And if the goldsmith were just to look on, then the gold would not reach the right consistency. But if the goldsmith, if the goldsmith would would from time to time blow on it, sprinkle on it, and just look on, then the gold would become purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. All those qualities is how the Buddha described his mind right before awakening. So I appreciate sometimes a little more effort, 
and sometimes a little bit less effort, and sometimes just looking on. The fourth quality, as this is something that we also don't see so often, is this recognition about the importance of health, like our physical health. In the suttas, it's uh, stated as being seldom ill. So you don't have to have perfect health, of course. But I'd like to open this up to seldom ill, rather to just being able to work with whatever our health is. Like, old age and sickness is going to happen to all of us. And it doesn't mean that we can't practice. And the Buddha knew this. So it doesn't have to be perfect health, but maybe I'd like to expand this to have balance in our life between some of these things that maybe are, uh, you already know. Do we have, are we so busy that we don't make time for our spiritual life or meditation or whatever it might be? Do we have work and play? Do we have play in our lives? Do we have time with others and time alone? And of course, do we have exercise and rest? Just some of these things, like we need to have a balance in our life in order for us to reach our aspirations to have the best life that we can. So I appreciate that the Buddha is pointing to health And I'm imagining that life, you know, thousands of years ago was very different than how it is now. And I imagine living closer to nature as they did. And, you know, their life, of course, changed with the seasons. That uh, maybe they had a little more balance than we do here. Where we're living in buildings and we can be completely removed from what's the seasons and what's happening outside. We have all these nice lights, right? It doesn't matter that it's dark outside. And then the last uh, quality to help support uh, aspirations is having wisdom about impermanence. And I'm interpreting this two ways. One is having wisdom about impermanence reminds us that, you know, we're going to die just like everything else does. You know, there's things end. Things that have the nature to be born have the nature to die. So sometimes we might think like, oh, I'll get to this aspiration stuff tomorrow. I'm going to do it later as soon as something or other is done. Perfectly natural. We, we do this so often. But here's an encouragement to, maybe is there a way that you can do something that moves your life in a direction that you want it to go, maybe towards some big dreams that you have. Also, this idea of impermanence, if we start to see that, well, not only us, of course, but everything is impermanent. There's nothing that is permanent, nothing that we can really hold on to to be a source of lasting happiness. Nothing is always going to consistently be a source of happiness forever. That just doesn't exist. We keep on looking for it. And we keep on holding on to what is bringing some pleasure or what is bringing a certain amount of happiness. But 
there will be a time in which it doesn't bring the amount of happiness that we wish. Of course, we all know this. Even though the advertising companies want us to forget it. And we do forget it. There's nothing, I don't want to beat us up for, for forgetting it, but this insight into impermanence, when we really see it in a deep way, then we stop asking all our experiences to be sources of lasting happiness. And instead there's this kind of letting go, there's a opening, a softening, and we're letting our experiences to just be our experiences instead of demanding that they satisfy us in some particular way. And it turns out that that is enormously satisfying, just to let experiences be experiences. Rather than saying, this is mine, it's only happening to me, or getting clinging around it in so many different ways, or assigning meaning to it, or they're because I had this experience, it means this about me. You're letting all that go instead just experiencing it. Letting allow some letting go and that is the ending of suffering. Which supports all aspirations, no matter what your aspiration is, ending suffering allows that one to happen, allows anything to happen. So these five qualities to help us with uh, our aspirations in the same way that the children of monarchs aspire to become the monarch. And there's these five qualities. Confidence, being honest and open, having enough energy, or applying effort, I'll say. Um, Having some health and well-being, I'm expanding that to say balance in our life, and seeing impermanence, having some wisdom. Impermanence can motivate us as well as maybe um, help us to not cling, which helps us to have less and less suffering and more and more freedom. So maybe with that, I'll open it up and see if there's any questions or comments. It doesn't have to be. I don't want anybody to feel pressured, but yeah. So I have a question here. Um, I get a little confused between the aspirations and the experience because sometimes my aspirations are for experience. So I don't know where the where the line is drawn what 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 is an aspiration you know what, oh i see you know. okay i think i'm defining experience a little bit different than you are i think i'm saying experience like right now i'm experiencing that there's pressure against my backside while i'm sitting here i'm saying like that's an experience so absolute mundane just what the body is experiencing through its senses what it sees what it hears that what it feels, what it tastes, what it smells. That's kind of all I'm saying is an experience. Okay. Just, okay. you know, whatever, just daily being alive things. As opposed to some 
the Disney experience or, you know, something like that, right? right. Okay. Does that help? That's helpful. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the question. That was good. That was, I love getting questions that help me clarify things. So thank you for asking that. Anybody else have a question or a comment? Yes, maybe Bill. I like the uh, part from the sutta that you talked about, the uh, goldsmith. Um, both uh, watching the gold and blowing on it and sprinkling water. Uh, and the picture I got from the way you told it was that um, although skill was needed and, and no doubt it took some effort for the goldsmith to develop that skill. Once he had the skill, um, doing those things was just kind of methodical and maybe didn't seem like effort. He needed the discipline. He needed to put the time in. He needed to do the things, but but, uh, it wasn't so hard. I see. Which makes, I guess if you can just get your frame of mind about, oh, you know, figuring out what, what the meditative process is and pra- practicing enough to where you develop the skill, maybe it doesn't seem hard. I see. Hmm. I, I was interpreting it a little bit different. Please tell. Yeah, just that the sensitivity to like, okay, how is the gold now? What is needed now? Now is a little bit more effort. Now is less effort and or backing off or and maybe or like cooling down, like if you feel agitated or something like that. And sometimes it's just to do nothing, just to abide. That's how I was interpreting it. I, and then is, is what you were saying a little bit different than that? I think it was. Yeah, I was thinking about how you can get to a comfort level with whatever you're doing. In this case, yeah. I think we're talking about meditation. I see. Uh, so that uh, no matter how much effort is required, there's something at the same time easy about it. I see. Just and like everything. Joyful and joyful, maybe. Yeah, just like everything we do, it gets easier. But I don't think we ever stop having to feel into, is a little bit more effort needed here? Is a little bit less here? Or should I? can I just hang out here in this experience? I think we're always having to do that. I would say that's part of the art of meditation is knowing this. It's like, when, when do I need to apply a little bit more mindfulness or effort? And when can I just... Because no two meditations are exactly the same. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you, you, Bill. Any other questions or comments? Okay, okay, so... Thank you for your kind attention, and I'm wishing you all a wonderful rest of your evening. Thank you.